Welcome to Approach the Bench, where we interview some of the leading jurists in the country about the work of judging and important issues within the judicial system. I'm Kara Bayless, a features reporter here at Law360, and for our second episode, we're talking with Judge William Young, a U.S. District Court judge in Massachusetts. In his four decades as a jurist, Judge Young has thought deeply about the art of judging. As a state court judge, he was such a proponent of courtroom transparency, he allowed the 1983 trial of a gang rape case to be broadcast, which sparked a Senate subcommittee hearing about victim privacy in court proceedings. He also wrote an open letter to his fellow judges to warn about the perils of abandoning the jury trial. When we spoke to him, his desk in chambers was stacked high with papers and binders of evidence because he was virtually presiding over a bench trial in Puerto Rico. Though he took senior status about two years ago, that's just another example of how he's still putting the trial in trial judge. This interview was edited for length and clarity. Judge Young, you wrote an open letter to your district court colleagues back in 2003 lamenting what you called the withering away of the federal jury trial. It's now been 20 years since you wrote that. Are you still concerned that the American jury system is dying? Yes, even more so, except interestingly, I think we're at the cusp, perhaps, of uh, something really quite exciting and good. It's very clear that both civil and criminal jury trials have drifted lower in absolute numbers and on a per judge basis over the last 20 years. And they reached their nadir in the second or third year of COVID. Then as we came out of COVID for the first time in 20 years, jury trials in the federal court revived. Today, they are at pre-pandemic levels. So I'm delighted to see that. It shows that we haven't abandoned the jury trial. I, I think the shock of having to literally close courtrooms during the pandemic, in some senses, recalled judges to their essential purpose when we no longer could function. We no longer could reach out for justice in a courtroom. Maybe some of us felt a little nostalgic for that. And and I say we're on the cusp because really in the last three administrations, the personnel of the courts, especially at my level, the trial level, the district level, that's changed in, in a significant degree. And many of uh, my most recent colleagues are younger, uh, shall I say, more vigorous, uh, with really active and good ideas. And th the question now is, or I would think the question is, are we going to, we have a chance to reassert the jury trial as the goal of the entire exercise? And of course, I'm very strong in hoping that we do. A time will tell, but we have the opportunity. Maybe this seems like an obvious question, but why is the jury trial the goal? I mean, why was it concerning when jury trials seem to be vanishing? If you make the trial as the goal of the entire 
array of responsibilities that the trial judge has, then everything else falls into place. It all makes sense. The civil rules, the criminal rules, all work the way they were intended. I would be a fool, or only, maybe I am, but only a fool would say every case should go to trial. The system can't work that way. There's nothing wrong intrinsically. Well, scholars have some problem with most individuals pleading, and there is a disparity of power between the government and the individual, and we judges have to be careful of that. But you know, a system where most cases plead is not intrinsically wrong. The government shouldn't be indicting people unless they have a, a large amount of evidence. But the judge, as the neutral, should always be thinking, how are we going to try this? How are we going to make the system work? Not because it's fun to try cases, though it is, but it is the highest expression of justice in our society. For years, you've compiled a list of the most productive federal district courts, and you measure productivity by looking at the average number of hours that a judge in a particular district has spent on the bench, either in hearings or at trial. So how do you compute that, and where are you getting your numbers from? I could not do this without my magnificent judicial assistant, Elizabeth Sonnenberg. But here's the direct and simple answer. The data comes from the statistical division of the administrative office of the United States courts. It comes from specific tables that you can work with to come up with the data that I have decided are important to go into this America's most productive courts. And so Ms. Sonnenberg goes into the tables, gets the aggregate data for the court in general, each of the 94 district courts, divides by the congressionally authorized number of judges, and then ranks the court from 1 to 94 in four different categories the number of civil trials, the number of criminal trials, the number of hours spent on the bench on civil business, and the number of hours spent on the bench on criminal business, and then averages those four criteria. And we then publish the top third, congratulating them as America's most productive courts. That same statistical analysis from the federal judiciary usually highlights the caseload numbers, the weighted caseload, which is calculated by analyzing every district's docket for complexity and then dividing by the number of judges assigned to that district. Do you compile the numbers that you just described because you feel that the caseload numbers don't paint a complete enough picture or do they emphasize the wrong thing? I mean, could you speak a little bit about why calculating time on the bench is so important? First of all, they don't paint a complete picture. And if there is any emphasis, the emphasis is on moving the business. They are quite sophisticated 
and, and, and again, these are these are wonderful people, wonderful statisticians. I must emphasize that their data is accurate. Now, answering your question, they emphasize the speed with which you move a case through the system. And there's nothing the matter with that. Efficiency is part of justice, but it's not justice. It's only part of justice. A really outstanding sociologist said, uh, what gets measured gets done. And it's true. And my problem is that you can't measure justice. And here I want to pause because I do have different views than some other judges. And, and I want to disagree without in any way being disagreeable. There are 677 active United States district judges. There's a bunch of senior judges who are still making significant contributions. And there are the magistrate judges. Now, that's the district court bench, those judicial officers taken together. And I don't know one. And, and I, I know a lot of people now after these years. I don't know one who is not sincerely reaching out for justice in as devoted and intelligent and hardworking way as I try to. So when I say I differ with them, I'm not in any way saying they're mistaken. I'm simply trying to offer what, in my opinion, is a better way. So having said that, if, if you're overemphasizing moving the business, I think that tends to denigrate from the careful values that the, what I call the trial model of American jurisprudence provides. Moving the business is not the goal. Since trials by their very nature are careful, they are so individual and so caring of that individual. You rather wonder whether the just result is perhaps subordinated unduly to the speedy and inexpensive result. Now, we're far too slow. I'm the first one to say that in the federal courts. We're far too slow and we're vastly too expensive. I argue that the trial model is absolutely the best way to counter that. If your goal is to move every case to trial, that's the best way to get settlements. That's the best way to have an offender actually concentrate on what's going to happen when he gets into the courtroom. And if they plead, they plead. And, and if not, we go to trial. You were just talking about the trial model versus the administrative model of conducting a courtroom. And I know you consider yourself a practitioner of the trial model. What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? What are some concrete examples of how this plays out in your courtroom management? Every trial lawyer, every lawyer, knows the difference between a judge who's following the administrative model and a judge who's following the trial model. Take the hearing of a motion, any motion, makes no difference. 
And so the lawyers argued the motion. And then as lawyers will, because they are professionals and they truly are colleagues, they go out in a hall. Now, if you've been before an administrative judge, an administrative model judge, one lawyer says to the other, he's thinking about how he can get rid of this case. If you argue the same motion, identical motion, in the same case before a trial model judge, the professionals go out and they kibitz, and one says to the other, she's thinking about what the verdict slip is going to look like. Most cases have a motion to dismiss uh, these days. And think of what's going on in the judge's mind. And now the standard is the plausibility standard. If the judge is thinking to himself, oh, well, gee, this, this is pretty far out. And, you know, if I grant this motion, it will go away and it will score as a case taken care of. That has a certain impact. On the other hand, if you're following the trial model, same issue, and you're thinking to yourself, how would we ever try this? What, what is the evidence going to look like? Is this something that uh, a jury can even grant relief? Or what sort of relief does this person want who says there are noxious squirrels outside my apartment? You, you know, if, if you're thinking that, you may still grant the motion to dismiss. But I suggest to you the likelihood, if you can think your way through to something that's triable, is more desirable. Motion for summary judgment. The same impact. You grant the motion for summary judgment, they're gone. You get a mark. The case is closed. It, it goes on those statistics. And one of the ways to see the real difference, take a look at the decisions of judges on motions for summary judgment. How often do you hear the judge say, so on this motion, I find that, uh, you know, there's just no, no way that this could be established. I started out for a really, I was clerk to a really outstanding jurist, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, Raymond S. Wilkins. And I wrote, once wrote him a bench memo, and in it, I had used the word find. And he looked at me, he said, find? We don't find anything. We rule. Now, you know, I've never forgotten that. And I'm not an appellate judge, never will be. But when I sit uh, to hear a motion for summary judgment, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking all the facts as the rule requires. I'm taking all the facts in favor of the side that is opposing the motion. And then I'm saying to myself, what is the rule of law? And unless there is a rule of law that prevents the person from going to trial, well, then they ought to go to trial. Where does this come from? This idea that the judge now is finding things. It's one of the tragic results that comes out of the criminal sentencing guidelines because you see the guidelines inform the judge of things that the judge ought do in sentencing an individual 
The problem with that, you see, is that the rules also make clear that sentencing hearings aren't evidentiary. And so the information the judge has has nothing to do with evidence. It's pretty much what the government tells the probation officer. And the guidelines say, well, then if, if there's this, if there's that, it has this quantity and that quantity. That is, in my view, a, a significant pernicious teaching to the judge. So they get at this crucial stage where we are deciding the fate of another individual and the rules themselves say, well, make up your mind. Here are the guidelines. And and you're wrestling with it and you're reading it. And, and then, because judges have to, you decide. But you know, you're not deciding on any true evidence or any facts. You're just doing what you think is just under the guidelines. That same approach judges apply to things where they ought not be finding anything. Judges aren't making findings on a motion for summary judgment. They're certainly not making findings on the motion to dismiss. And yet I would argue that we do it far too often. A judge who truly values the trial, which is what I'm urging throughout here, is less likely to do any of that, is more likely to turn to the direct democracy of the people and say the people should decide, as in fact they should. You mentioned the two attorneys in the hallway at the beginning of that answer. Does that change the way they approach a case? Yes. Look at how lawyers approach a case once it has gotten before a multi-district litigation judge, as opposed to a, a very complex, we'll say patent case, for example. The case is just as complex, but and, and maybe it has really seven, ten-figure possible uh, result, but it's a single case. Look at how they approach it. Their approach is significantly different in multi-district litigation. It's all settlement, all the time, with a nod toward, oh, yeah, yeah well, maybe. Uh, we we, we got to do something here. But really, what's, what's the reserve here? What's the bottom line? How are we going to turn this over? I'll be very candid. I dance for joy when a case settles. Don't, don't think I don't. But the, the, the goal is how are we going to try this case? You know, are we going to put the validity of the patent first? Are we then going to try infringement? What are the uh, advantages to that? And the lawyers all know that. And so the lawyers uh, uh, approach it in that wise, though, of course, they're thinking settlement all the time. A a any good lawyer would. In terms of how lawyers approach your courtroom, do you have some courtroom pet peeves, like mistakes or missteps that lawyers make? When I'm asked that question, I, I think about something I think is a little more affirming. And I learned this, and I was privileged to actually work with the, the great judge, Henry Friendly, who was on the Second Circuit. And lawyers, most lawyers are very courteous, and, and as I should be to them. And part of their courtesy is you'll get lawyers saying, 
Judge, thank you so much for your time. It, it happened in this uh, case that we're hearing in Puerto Rico. So I come on the screen, same shambles of a background, and uh, we're getting ready for opening statement. And, and a lawyer says, well, I want you to know, Judge, how grateful we all are that you're appearing here in Puerto Rico and taking the time to try this case. And my stock answer is something that I learned from Judge Friendly, and I I repeat it. And Judge Friendly used to say, when a lawyer would say that to him, he would say, well, that's what they pay me for. <laughs> and uh, I do that. And I uh, uh, another thing, which is not, I suppose, so kindly, lawyers sometimes will say, Judge, well, I, for the record, and I will sometimes say, well, who are you talking to? Are you talking to me or the Court of Appeals? Uh, because they're trying to persuade me. I mean, for the record, what record? I'm sitting here. It doesn't disturb me. You've uh, been an advocate for opening up court proceedings uh, long before Zoom was a thing. And sometimes that's strong controversy. I'm thinking of the broadcast of the Big Dance Rape case back when you were a state court judge, but you stood by that decision and you haven't shied away from documenting proceedings. Uh, not only did you participate in the federal cameras in the courtroom pilot program a decade ago, but you have those videos uh, on your webpage, your court webpage under the heading, A Workaday Judge at Work. So why is transparency about what goes on in the courtroom so important to you? Because the judge at every stage is a teacher of the law. And if we truly have a magnificent system, and I guess I am biased, I believe in our system wholeheartedly. It is that to which I've devoted my life. I cannot see the reason at the trial level for not allowing, with appropriate rules, the uh, uh, cameras in our courtrooms. I can see restrictions. I think the uh, issue is different at the level of the Supreme Court of the United States, where those justices have their private lives to live and making them iconic figures as they come and go to work presents significant problems. So I'm not speaking to that at all. But at the district court level, especially after the pandemic, remember <laughs> when we no longer could try jury cases, we didn't stop. We trying to preserve everyone's health. Uh, we did go on TV, criminal and civil. We, we said to the press, who honored it? You, you cannot make recordings of this proceeding, but the Republic didn't fall that uh, all the uh, pretrial proceedings were public. There's just no principled argument that we should exclude a camera from the courtrooms. Now, there are restrictions. In Massachusetts, you can only have one camera, and, and that's a central feed. The, the various media have to feed off that camera, and the camera must be unobtrusive, and the camera must take everything down. If somehow you could tell when they were filming it, you know that the jury will see that they are uh, taking the testimony of the mistress, but they're not taking the testimony of the accountant. 
when in fact it is the testimony of the accountant that may provide the motive for the murder. I'm making all this up, but you understand the point I'm making. So you put the camera there and, and the, it fades into the background. Having actually done this, uh, the jury can't tell the difference because the camera is always there and it's always on. And then the, the press appropriately can make their choice as to what to broadcast. But with appropriate restrictions, there's just no reason why the public ought not have uh, accessibility to uh, every court proceeding. It, it would be instructive to uh, do a study and film for a month every courtroom in this courthouse. See how many of them were uh, dark and how many of them were live and what was going on in each one. The public's entitled to know that. Where are these judges? Because there is a value to the judge actually being on the bench. All right, Judge. Well, um, I have to say, when you were talking about the motion to dismiss, I think you mentioned an example of a case involving noxious squirrels. And I can't stop thinking about that now. I, I shouldn't comment on any particular case except to tell you that that's a real case. No, really? Oh, wow. Well, I really appreciate you speaking with us. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, you're very welcome. We'd like to thank our guest, Judge William Young. Our episode was produced by Stephen Trader. Our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Music from the show comes from Law360's own Kelly Marcano. Thank you for listening.